Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I've always sort of hated the term, have you ever seen anything like it? Because that is generally said to someone who's standing in front of a giant burning building or something just exploded and you want to say, of course not, no one has. But we say that again and again and again and again during these four years with the president. And there's just an endless string of surprises. That's Martha Raditz. She's the chief global affairs correspondent at ABC News and the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Raditz's storied journalism career has taken her from the war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan to the White House briefing room and the presidential debate stage. She's also traveled around the country to better understand the forces that led to the Trump presidency. Raditz joins me this week to discuss what she's learned in her travels, how Donald Trump has changed journalism, and whether we should be concerned about the recent upheaval at the Pentagon. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Lee, who lives in Decatur, Georgia. Hello, Preet. We are working hard in Georgia to get our two Democratic candidates elected January 5th. If there is then a tie, 50 Dems and 50 Republicans, from what party is the majority leader selected? Lee, who, as I've said, is a resident of Georgia, is of course referring to the two runoff Senate races going on in Georgia that will decide the ultimate fate of the Senate. If the Democrats win both of them, the chamber will be evenly split, 50-50, between senators who are either Democrats or caucus with the Democrats versus Republicans. So to answer your question, we went back and did a little bit of research to refresh our recollections. It turns out there's only been a 50-50 split three times in American history. Once in 1881, once in 1953, and most recently, within our memory, at the start of the second George Bush's presidency after the 2000 election. So for a brief time, then-Republican leader Trent Lott, who was the Senate Majority Leader in name, shared power with the Democratic leader, Tom Daschle, and they worked out a kind of an interesting agreement. So Dick Cheney, obviously, was a deciding vote, the 51st vote. Lott retained the title of Majority Leader, and the GOP had all of the committee chairs. But the makeup of each committee was evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. You usually don't have that. As was funding allocations for staffers, as was office space. And these things, I can tell you, as a former Senate staffer, you know, maybe not the most important things in America, but very important to the staff. The Senate also adopted an interesting and unique rule that allowed either Lott or Daschle to move bills and nominations to the floor if there was a tie or a deadlock in the committee. That, of course, didn't last long because a few months later, Senator Jim Jeffords of Vermont left the Republicans to join with the Democrats and caucus with them, giving them a very tiny majority. And then the Republicans took back the Senate outright in 2002. So what would happen this time around if it was 50-50? I don't think that circumstances are similar to what they were like just 20 years ago. It's hard to imagine a similar power-sharing agreement, even with respect to internal rules of the Senate, between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. So if the result after the January 5th runoffs is 50-50 in the Senate, the situation is the opposite of what we had in 2000. Senator Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, would become the majority leader because Vice President Kamala Harris would have the deciding vote. Is it possible there would be some kind of 
power sharing arrangement with respect to office space and the like. I doubt it because things are more partisan and polarized now, but it's possible. So look, everyone who wanted Trump to be gone and wanted Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to be elected, there's still more work to do. A lot hinges upon whether or not the Senate is in the control of Democrats or Republicans. A lot of Joe Biden's agenda can either be pushed forward or stymied, depending on what happens in the Senate. So I'm glad, Lee, you and others in Georgia and around the country are going to be working hard in those Senate runoff races. This question comes from Twitter user Josh Braun. Hashtag AskPreet. Is there any realistic limit to the number of specious lawsuits the Trump campaign can file? Or can they continue flooding the zone with BS indefinitely just to gum up the works? Nope. Apparently no limit. <laughs> They've filed many, 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 as you have seen. And our, our friend and former podcast guest, Mark Elias, keeps kind of a running tally going with respect to the cases that he is working on on Twitter. I think the last time I checked last night, the Trump campaign was 1 in 25. We have a free and open legal system in this country, and there are limitations on whether or not a good faith lawsuit can be brought and whether or not the opposing party can move for sanctions and or get attorney's fees, depending on the circumstances and the jurisdiction. But this is a desperate last ditch attempt for Donald Trump to try to change the outcome, which reasonable people understand to be a foregone conclusion. We don't have a lawsuit quota system in this country. You can bring them as often as you want. And clearly, Donald Trump is trying to break a record. This question comes from Twitter user DBR Pro. Could the president pardon for future crimes, or would they all have to be committed before January 20th, 2021? Hashtag AskPreet. Well, that's an interesting question. And I think the clear answer is no, you cannot pardon for future crimes. I know no doctrine by which any executive, either a governor or a president, under any understanding of pardon, law, or policy, could give a get-out-of-jail-free card to a person indefinitely going into the future. It just doesn't work that way. The confusion sometimes arises from the following distinction. It is true that you can pardon someone, the president can pardon someone, for a crime not yet charged, but it has to have been committed during the presidency. And the example that we give all the time on this show and in other places was President Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon had not been charged with anything yet in any federal court. But Ford, within the discretion of his constitutional powers, preemptively pardoned Richard Nixon for any crimes he may have committed against the United States during his time as president. You, can, you cannot give someone a blank check to, in the future, murder or rape or defraud. That just doesn't work. This question comes from Twitter user The Bees and Cs. Good name. Hi, Preet. Given the proliferation of alternative right-wing news channels like OANN and Newsmax, and the damaging misinformation they put out, is there a case for revisiting the First Amendment? Hashtag AskPreet. So I want to say right off the bat, no. The First Amendment is the first one in the Bill of Rights for a reason. It's a bedrock of freedom in this country. It's a hallmark of our democracy. And I think it is a dangerous business to try to figure out ways to whittle away First Amendment freedoms. So I want to be clear on that. In our democracy, we believe in the proposition, the truth of the proposition, that sunlight, sunshine, is the best disinfectant. And the antidote to bad speech or incorrect speech or disinformation is more speech. And there should be enough outlets out there for people to get out their point of view. We don't stifle speech. At least the government is not entitled to stifle speech or censor speech. And I think that's important in this country. And so I appreciate your point of view that there's damaging misinformation put out by right-wing news channels. The people who listen to those outlets would say in their view, in their perspective, there is misinformation put out by outlets on the left. And it begins to be a dangerous business for government to decide who is correct and who is not. But your question does raise an issue that we've discussed on the podcast before, and that is the legacy of the Fairness Doctrine. You may remember we had historians Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelitzer on our podcast some months ago, and they have written about this topic, both in their book and in op-ed pieces. And in their view, the demise of the Fairness Doctrine has contributed to the rise of partisan media and some of our polarization in this country. What was the Fairness Doctrine? Well, as they put it, it was a policy of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, starting back in 1949, that television networks were considered public trustees. They were licensed by the federal government, and they were supposed to serve the entire nation. And so the argument went, by airing and requiring them to air competing perspectives on controversial issues, something good was accomplished in democracy. The policy was intended to foster a full and fair debate. But as historians point out, in practice, what it did was it really led networks to avoid employing anchors or reporters with obvious biases 
And so they played things down the middle. The media was a lot more centrist, as opposed to having a left-wing person balanced by a right-wing person, everyone was kind of sort of in the center. Conservatives did not like this. And so the FCC, under the presidency of Ronald Reagan, basically announced it would no longer enforce the Fairness Doctrine. And Reagan's FCC effectively killed it. Members of Congress tried to restore the doctrine through statute, but Reagan vetoed that bill. That is what has given rise to a lot of television and talk radio, especially, that has proliferated on the right and a little bit on the left as well. And so while I do think it would be anathema to most people, myself included, to do something dramatic with the First Amendment, I think we should, as they say, leave it be. It's an open question as to whether the Fairness Doctrine should have been allowed to die or not. I'm mixed on it. I haven't really decided. I wonder what you think. Let us know your thoughts about the Fairness Doctrine. Write to us at letters at cafe.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Martha Raddatz is my guest this week. She's the chief global affairs correspondent at ABC News and the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Raddatz recently embarked on a 6,000-mile road trip to speak with swing state voters about the presidential election. Today, we discuss the lessons she's learned in her travels throughout the country, the lasting impact of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and some memorable moments from her distinguished career in journalism. Martha Raddatz. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Preet. We were talking before we started taping, not about the election, not about the pandemic, <laughs> not about the Department of Defense, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing that happens now during the time of the pandemic. We talked about which shows we binge watch. <laughs> yeah, we got to escape all those other things. Do you want, do you want to share a recommendation? Uh, I highly recommend Unbelievable, which I watched about six months ago, but it's based on a true story. I think it was three, four parts. Netflix, amazing. And then uh, my favorites are Fauda and uh, the same people have, uh, it's from Israeli TV, and uh, Tehran, which is dark and rich. And I've been there, so I can kind of relate to that. And uh, 
love it. But you chickened out of Ozark. I chickened out of Ozark. I watched one part and it was just too violent, frankly, just so cleverly violent and horridly violent. I, I and I, so many friends of mine recommended it, but I, I just, I just couldn't do it. It's very good. Have a glass of wine and. Try it maybe one and more time. And try it again. <laughs> and wine makes me like violence. I, I okay, Well, it just numbs you. It numbs <laughs> you. I mean, look, I don't want to, you know, different strokes for different folks. Exactly. Do you think there'll come a time when busy people, like I know you are, and I tend to be, that will stop watching so much television? You know, I, I have to say there's so much good television on. There's so much quality television that if you find something, I, I, I don't feel guilty about it at all. I really don't. I read. And for relaxation with a glass of wine, there's, uh, it's pretty great to watch streaming TV. You've adopted that suggestion very quickly, I know. Yes, yes, for the, for absolutely. The so I'm not, I'm not giving it up. So we are, we are recording this uh, in advance of when it drops on Tuesday, November 17th. Who won, who won the election, Martha? <laughs> uh, wait, was it Joe Biden? I think so. I think that's I think, pretty well, much look. solidly decided. Some people don't believe it. You people, by which I mean the enemy of the people, the press, the mainstream media, all say that Joe Biden won. Is there going to come a time, based on your deep psychological observations of the president and his team, that he will concede, or is that not in the cards for us at all? I, I think the reporting is different pretty much every day. Some day it's he'll concede, other days he won't concede. I, I did the show... On Sunday the 15th, I did the Sunday morning show. And we had taped an open, uh, we call it page two, uh, about the news and, and you know the fact that he hadn't conceded. And about 15 minutes before the show, or maybe it was uh, whatever, half an hour before the show, uh, it all changed because he tweeted. Oh, right, he did. <laughs> uh, he, he won because the election was rigged. So we're like, oh my gosh, we got to pre, we got to do that over again and, <laughs> and we'll do that. So we did it over again. We included that, you know, he was vaguely conceding. And then by the end of the hour, <laughs> in fact, less than by the end of the hour, he had said, you know, don't, don't pay any attention to that. I'm not conceding, whatever. So, um, you know, who knows at some point, at some point, I guess it won't make any difference, but you, because he'll be out of the White House. But in so many ways, you know, we can we can joke about it, but it's it's so important to start the transition process. I mean, there's there's not anyone who's who's going into the White House and who's going into government who doesn't think it's important to get the information they need right now, and especially on COVID and national security. Yeah, I mean, you observe how many Republican senators have said. Biden has won, not that many, but lots and lots of Republican senators have said it's really important no matter what, either way, for Joe Biden to start getting intelligence briefings. Is that, I mean, what, what level of concern are you hearing when you talk to people in the Senate on the Republican side? I think there's some level of concern for sure. I, I think the only thing that gives them comfort is that Joe Biden has been there before. So it's not exactly he's a he's the new guy going in, but the world has changed in those four years since he has been there and he needs him. I mean, it is absolutely vital. So I think you see at some point, maybe more Republican senators will start coming forward and saying, hey, we really got to do something about this. But but so far, there hasn't been a lot of movement. Yeah, you said something a second ago about how Trump said something at the beginning of your live hour and then said something different before the hour was over. And I guess my question is, over the four years, or more than four years, if you include the campaign as well, have you and other members of the press ceased to be surprised by things the president does and says, or have you built in some sort of resignation to the fact that, you know, these things are going to happen? Like, how, how do you think the press has adjusted over the four to six years of Trump being in the national spotlight? I think... You get used to his surprises, but he never ceases to surprise. I mean, that's that's one of the things that was astonishing. You, I've always sort of hated the term, have you ever seen anything like it? Right. Because that is generally said to someone who's standing in front of a giant burning building or something just exploded and you want to say, of course not, no one has. But we say that again and again and again and again during these four years with the president. And there is just an endless string of surprises. I, I, I couldn't begin to name how many times we are surprised or how many times our 
our White House correspondents have said, <laughs> we've never seen anything like it. And it's so not over. I, I think, and, and it's not over, and the surprises continue. I mean, I think, you know, probably a week ago, people would have thought, okay, now he'll concede. And, I, you know, in a week from now, who knows what we'll be surprised about. Will you be surprised if he runs in 2024? I guess not. I mean, I, again, we <laughs> what never kind of answer to be is that? Su- surprised. I, I mean, it, it's you know what it is. It's it's a it's a Trump era answer is what that <laughs> is. We, there, there's nothing you can say with certainty. There there just isn't. And and you know, trying to read him. I mean, in some ways, you 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 get used to that, and you can and you can kind of read him, and. You know, you might say, "Okay, he just said that on Twitter, but is that what he really meant?" And and I think that's probably what happened with that Sunday tweet. Probably didn't realize he just, you know, vaguely conceded. And when he heard the news coverage, then oh, I got to turn that around. So I, I guess I can see him running. At the same time, I guess I can see him just wanting to do something entirely different because he's already done this. Um, it's just, it's impossible to predict with any certainty. Absolutely impossible. And I'm, I'm just not the kind of smarty pants who, who says, who, who says anything about President <laughs> Trump with absolute certainty. It's good not to predict these days. And let me ask you the question about the press and its evolution a different way. Um, and I haven't gone back and looked at all the early clips, but I think it's the case that when the president said something, I'll use this phrase, non-factual during the campaign and I mean the 2016 campaign and right after he became president, you know, there was a general reluctance on the part of the press to use harsh language to describe what he had done, namely lied. Fast forward to the run-up to this election, and you see people saying it all the time. You see people cutting away from the president's talks from the White House. You see real-time fact-checking. You see the word falsehood. You see the word lie by mainstream anchors. I don't know if you've done it. I didn't do a check. What do you think accounts for that? And and was that the right evolution? I, I think, first of all, you were presented with so many facts that just weren't, or or there were so many things that were said that were just simply not true. And I think the press, I mean, it's not easy. Believe me, it's not easy and it has not been easy making those decisions. And we talk about it all the time. And I think there was that evolution from, you know, this, this, this isn't exactly true, or he misrepresented to that was a lie. And I think most of us have said that is not true. I think the one thing you want to avoid, and at least we do, I think at ABC, is when it goes over to main calling, you're a liar. Right. You know, that was a lie. This was a lie. That was uh, misrepresented. I, I think you have to say that when it's just so out there. Um, but the name calling, I, I I would not stand there and say, you're a liar, Mr. President. I would say that was a lie or that was misrepresented because it's, it's you know, this is the office of the president of the United States and he was duly elected to that office. So it it, it, it has been very tough. I mean, what also is very tough is is knowing that there are millions and millions and millions of people who don't care that he states things that are not true. And I mean, I've had that experience. Yeah, I want to get to your your cross-country trip in a moment. But you know, what people sometimes may not appreciate is that in certain courts, there's a distinction in the law between what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Appropriate to say that a witness made a misstatement or a falsehood or even a witness lied, but to call a witness a liar in some places is not acceptable for the reasons you described. So you know, there's a parallel in the law as well. I'm glad I'm, I'm, glad I'm following that then. <laughs> So you went, you went on how many, 6,000 6, miles across the United States? Is that correct? Do I have the right mileage? That is correct. Just about 6,000 Did you miles. use your, how, did, how do you know? 6, did, how many steps is that? Did you use your iPhone? <laughs> well, how about just the odometer? That's what we used. Oh, you were we in a vehicle. It. You were in a vehicle. We were in a vehicle. We did not fly. We, we took COVID precautions uh, as much as possible. We pre-planned the trip. I would say 90% of our interviews were set up beforehand, if not more, because we wanted to stay safe and, you know, jumping out of the car as I could do last year and say, hey, you, um, can you tell me what you think is just not safe. And particularly in places where no one's wearing masks. Um, So we set that up, but it was a marvelous experience to go in the middle of the pandemic, 
see how people are living, see who's wearing masks, see who see who isn't, and actually talk to people outside of DC. And I try to do that as much as possible. So we drove, you know, Pennsylvania down through Missouri, ended up anchoring the Sunday show from Boulder, Colorado. And then that very same day drove down to Santa Fe and then into the Navajo Nation. And we did not go to California because we pretty much knew that that state was going for Joe Biden. So we didn't go all the way there. And then we came back through Texas and and through the South and, and Georgia and North Carolina and then back. It took about 10 days, two weeks. It, but But really such a great way to get kind of a feel for the country. And I have to say that my feeling was when I came back that it would not be as easy for Joe Biden to win as some of the polls said. That's interesting. Now, you have previously reported from war zones. How was how, how did this compare to that? <laughs> the United States of America, circa 2020. Well, certainly you, you see some behavior that you see in places overseas when you're talking about democracy. And some behaviors that are more authoritarian than you think of in a democracy. So I think, you know, some of that sort of out of the playbook and particularly elections, you know, it's not fair, it's rigged, it's not fair, I won. Um, You can see that overseas. I I, I think conflict zones, I I used to... um, kind of say to people that when I first moderated a debate that I would rather be in Iraq because the debates are such no-win situations. Um, I mean, I've I've covered conflict for you know, 20 years. I, I was doing the Afghanistan drawdown story and thought, oh my gosh, it really, we have just entered the 20th year. Um, we've been there 19 plus years. We are in the 20th year. 20th year of a conflict I've covered, it really goes fast. And it's it, it's extraordinary to sort of have that experience and that that institutional memory, although I can't definitely can't remember everything, but but to just know how those countries fared during the time from 2005 to 2007, I covered the Bush White House. So I covered that was essentially covering the Iraq war. But I, the most amazing vantage point was being able to sit in that, in the White House, in a briefing, able to question a president about policy, that you have seen what happened to that policy, that you not only see the policy enacted, you see the effect of that policy when you're in Iraq, when you're in Afghanistan. So that that was that has been an extraordinary experience. And, and in many ways, for me, the equivalent is going across the country and talking to voters and and being able to see what the president does and the effect of that. And you really do, it, it, it's kind of the same thing in, a, in the domestic world. The last foreign trip I took, and, and you know, COVID is horrible. It is, it has changed everyone's life. And, and you and I are lucky because we're healthy. And my family is healthy, and I feel terrible for people. It has also just changed the way we work, of course. And uh, the last foreign trip I took was in mid-January to Tehran, just days after the U.S. killed Soleimani. Yeah. And in the center of those massive crowds, and that's my last time I have done anything in terms of foreign news. And, you know, who knows when we'll be on the ground again, able to cover that. So I have this question based on your 6,000-mile trip. You're a reporter, and you deal in facts and data points, but you're not a pollster. And I wonder how you balance, how you take in information that you get anecdotally. So you go to Missouri or Pennsylvania or Colorado, and you talk to people. Presumably, you're not picking statistically significant samples. You're not micro-targeting them to get a sense of, as a scientific matter, how the country is going to go or how that state or that community is going to go. So on the one hand, you have what's supposedly a scientific polling. We know that didn't work out so well. And then you are an intelligent reporter who's been around the block and has studied not only our country, but other countries. How do you take in this information that is just anecdotal? And had you turned down this other street, maybe you would have met a different family. Had you turned down a different street, you might have met a Biden family. 
and they might have conveyed their thoughts about the two candidates differently. It's like the soft science, like this, the guy's got a big crowd, but the polling says otherwise, or people are staying longer and they're just more excited. And like all that is soft stuff. How do you process that? Well, I, I think one of the things you do is, I mean, you do look at the polls. You look at the polls and you try to see what is behind them. And, you know, pollsters are asking these questions. And is that how these people feel who you meet? I mean, clearly anything you get from gathering um, ran, either randomly or set up, it, it, you know, when you go on a cross-country trip, it's going to be anecdotal. And I, I think without question, it's anecdotal. But I think it gives you, so it's not a poll, but I think my approach has been to see what's behind those polls. And if people are saying they are voting more for, if, if they're voting against Donald Trump rather than for Joe Biden, then, you know, that's a way to a way to approach that and and helps you with your questions. So I, I, I think that's the way to approach it. And you know, obviously, I always say it's anecdotal. It is pretty interesting, though, because I do think, just from my own experience, they do match the polls. And what you also, what was really quite incredible, for the Biden voters and the Trump voters, the messaging really works. And, you know, if they're getting blasted on their phone that Joe Biden's a socialist or whatever, there's a lot of people out there who believe that. So that messaging was was resonating. And, you know, some of it with the Biden voters, too. But I, I thought it was really heartening as people are incredibly, as is obvious from the election numbers, from the voter numbers, are deeply interested in the election in politics, in all of this. It will be interesting to see how far that goes now. Well, have we solved apathy? <laughs> have we, have I, we... I think we solved apathy. Martha Raddatz, you heard it here first. We have cured apathy. <laughs> we, have a, we have an apathy vaccine and his name is Donald J. Trump. Yes, <laughs> is <that> right? <laughs> yes, yes. It's, uh, no, I think, you've, I think you've said it. Yes, I mean, it has definitely changed. I mean, I found, well, in 2016, I did... A similar trip, and I've done them on the whole border um, during immigration. I've we've done many of these trips. Some of them shorter than others. You know, some you just go to Texas, or some you just go to Pennsylvania. But I, I, I mean, the, I, I can't remember the last time I went up to somebody randomly pre-COVID and asked them a question about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of the candidates that they were completely unaware of what was going on. And that happened quite a bit over the years, but not this election cycle, not at all. But here's the corollary, if you'll allow me. So we solve or cure apathy. Is the necessary consequence of that polarization, divisiveness? If everyone's all of a sudden uh, interested. That's sure, that's sure what I saw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's sure what so, that so is should we sure go back to Should we go back to apathy then? <laughs> no. How about we just go back to learning as much as possible about facts. That's what I would like people to learn about. And, you know, again, we, we can joke about enemy of the people, but it's, it's destructive. I mean, I, it always is, it is interesting when, you know, I'm standing there and people have agreed to be interviewed and they'll say, oh, no, no, it's not you particular, nothing personal, <laughs> right. but you're the enemy of the people. Right. Um, it's like everyone loves their, everyone hates Congress, but they love their congressman, right? Right, exactly. Martha's great, but the rest of you hacks in the media. Right. Well, it, let me just say, not everybody says Martha's great, for sure. But um, it's it's so divided. I mean, it is it is sad that we're such a divided country. Although I had a, a good experience in a neighborhood in Ohio, and it was a neighborhood of Biden supporters and Trump supporters both pretty hardcore on either side. And the neighbors said they, you know, I mean, massive dump Trump signs and, you know, we love, there's Trump Pence and there's dump Trump right next door to each other. And I asked both those neighbors if they got along. They're like, yeah, sure, no problem. But man, as soon as they ever talked politics, it was over. Yeah. So they just never did. And, and, and that's so central to everybody's life in the last year in particular because of COVID, because of the election, because of all that goes on, that 
you know, that, that's a big thing to cut out of any, you know, just kind of getting along with your neighbor. Right. I mean, can you elaborate on something you said that I didn't follow up on? And that is after your 6,000 mile road trip through the U.S., you were less sanguine about Biden's chances. Why was that? What were you hearing and what were you seeing that made you feel Biden was not as strong as the polls suggested? I think probably the enthusiasm and, and that there were a lot of people kind of on the fence. And not a lot of people, but but voters that we talked to who were undecided. And when I talked to them, there was particularly a farmer in Kansas, Bob Hazelwood. And Bob had voted independent in 2016, but had been a lifelong Republican. And he said he was undecided because he just didn't like Donald Trump's character. He didn't like the chaos, but he didn't like Joe Biden's policies. And he liked what Donald Trump had done for farmers. And I I think I drove away from that interview thinking, so it comes down to a guy like Bob Hazelwood goes into the, the polling place and says, do I vote for my needs, which I interpreted to be he liked Donald Trump for what he'd done for farmers, or if he thought in a bigger way, I don't like what Donald Trump has done to the country, he'll vote for Joe Biden. In the end, he actually did vote for Joe Biden, which which frankly surprised me. There he is on his beautiful farm. He, he is doing really well. He's done well under President Trump. But when he went, actually ended up not going to a polling place, he mailed in his ballot. But he told me two weeks before the election that he voted for Biden. His nephew, on the other hand, who was also undecided and leaning Trump, ended up voting for Donald Trump and said he just could not vote for for Joe Biden. Right. So when you hear that nuance and when you when you talk to people about what it is, why, you know, what it is you like about Donald Trump. I mean, and 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 then I had the the people who considered you know, Donald Trump a water walker. I mean, it was in 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 Ohio and wait, by water walker you mean you mean walks on water. For these lifelong Hamilton, Ohio residents, Trump's word is gospel. Well. I think he almost walks on water. He could walk, walks on water, like, yes. Like, like Jesus. <laughs> yes, okay. yes. Ex- can you yes. explain those people? Um, and, and, and seriously just said to me, I, I said, is there, you know, it's the old getting shot on Fifth Avenue, shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. I said, is there anything that Donald Trump could do that would dissuade you from voting for him? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. To me, he walks on water. That guy... In Ohio, even though he voted for Trump, thinks Trump should just move on, you know, can't believe he's not conceding, and thinks Joe Biden was elected president. So there were surprises from the trip. But I think one of the reasons I came back from that trip thinking it would be harder for Joe Biden than pollsters thought, which it was, is because I had the same feeling in 2016 when I came back from a trip. Right. And I remember telling some friends, like, I, you guys are discounting this guy. I'm not sure you should do that. But, uh, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't shocked about it. Like everybody was on election night. And that was mainly because of the polls, Look, right? A lot so, of people that you and I know, well, I don't mean to speak for you, but, <laughs> you know, people in the cities and people who are involved in the news and involved in public policy, you know, they have pretty strong, you know, sort of worldviews about politics and ideology and they, and they generally, over the course of their adulthood, generally, not always, you know, my, my parents vote, have voted Democrat generally, but they voted for Reagan once, if not twice. So there are exceptions like that. But lots of people, they're not doctrinaire. And sometimes they'll vote for the Democrat, for president, sometimes they'll vote for the Republican. I mean, there are people who voted for Bush, then Bush again, then Obama, then Obama again, and then Trump. And that seems to a lot of quote unquote elites who have firm and fixed views about, you know, ideology and, and politics and where on the spectrum they are, that seems ludicrous and almost incomprehensible. But I think we, I think a lot of folks who are in the business of analyzing politics and news forget that there are lots and lots of folks who can go either way every presidential election, right? Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. And I like that thoughtfulness. I, I like that it's not doctrinaire, I vote this, I vote that. I mean, that they look at the person as a whole, that they look at the policies, that that whatever it is that makes them choose, it's not necessarily party or, you know, if you ask people on policy issues, they have, they have some pretty firm beliefs. 
And if the candidate they like better doesn't comport with that, that's okay. They'll let some things go. They'll ju- they'll juggle that around. I, I just know, you know, we're, we're talking about Donald Trump and the, and the difficulties of covering that in four years. The one thing I tried really hard to do over every single day is just be straightforward and just say what you know. Can I do analysis on the show? Sometimes you bet. But I think it's informed analysis. And I think it's from experience. I think it's from travels overseas, travels throughout the country that you can do some analysis. But I still try, and I think it's really important to just do facts, do straightforward, not make judgments. It is certainly, you can talk to people. I mean, I talk to people at the Pentagon, so I can say, you know, senior leaders think this, that, and the other, even though this is happening. But I, I just think the media needs to kind of even its keel and remember what our job is. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So the Saturday after the election, in cities all around the country, people erupted in jubilation and dancing and saying, I, I had to, I posted on Twitter that I just had to explain to my teenage kids that this is not the normal level of celebration that occurs when a president is called, that this was something different. My question to you is, when you think about the person who says Trump walks on water, and then you think about the person who spontaneously began dancing in the streets in Washington Square Park in New York, and you look at their different reactions to Trump and Trump and Biden, I guess, how do those two human beings ever talk to each other? Can they ever understand each other? Do they need to understand each other? Explain to us what's going on, Martha. I'm glad you talked about the people who weren't jumping up and down. I actually, our bureau is just a few blocks from the White House. And after we were on the air and I could hear things outside, I walked down to the gates, as close as you could get to the White House, and, and watched that. And then, honestly, I did think about that neighborhood, those neighborhoods I'd been in with all Trump signs and and what they were feeling. And, you know, I have no room for, zero room for any racism or homophobia. But a lot of people were hugely disappointed that night. And I, I think both sides have to kind of understand that and reach out in some ways. I love telling the story, and these, these are not particularly political stories, but I did Two or three years ago, National Geographic did an eight-part series on a book I wrote called The Long Road Home. And it's about a battle in Iraq where eight, and I'm not, I'm seriously not trying to sell books here. I'm telling you a story about people coming together um, because I'm not sure the book even exists, but the series is terrific. There were soldiers who were in that battle, survivors from that battle who were consultants on the show. And there was the showrunner and one of the executive producers is his name is Miko Alon. You could not be more liberal than Miko Alon. He is a vegan cat lover who lives in LA. And those soldiers, many of them very conservative, probably some of them voted for Trump for sure. And Miko got along just fantastically. And I always tell people that that's where I got my faith in this country, that we can come together because they respected one another for what they respected them for. Miko, deep respect for the military. And they had deep respect for Miko's skills as a writer and producer and someone who respected them. So if you can respect one another, 
and find that middle, I think it can work. And, you know, if Miko and my soldiers can get along the way anyone can. Can we unpack your metrics for a moment? Because I think you said about that person, they're as liberal as they come, and you said vegan cat lover. So cat, so I, <laughs> this is new to me. Cats are liberals? No. So on, only liberals like cats? No, no, come oh, on. You're not going to get me on that. <laughs> Look, you're we taking a position between- as Yes, be- yes. And my son, <laughs> my son, who is, you know, is as kind of like jockey as they come, absolutely adores cats. And <laughs> all um, right. I just, look, I just wanted yeah. you to have a chance I, to I elaborate. I happen to be allergic to them. All I'm right? allergic to cats. I happen to allergic. Please, I am, yes, I am too. And, you know, sneeze like crazy. So, um, yeah, but I love cat lovers. I love dog lovers. All right. Now you're, now you're, pan- now you're pandering. <laughs> so can, can, we, can we switch gears and talk about the Department of Defense? And you have covered a lot of national security issues. And, and let me put it to you this way. It's not a very eloquent question, but what the hell is going on and should we be worried? (laughs) I, you know, started reporting last week that there are definitely concerns at the Pentagon, inside, outside the Pentagon, about what Donald Trump will do in the coming months. I think they're concerned clearly about Iran, and uh, I believe he's been talked out of any action. But I think, and, you know, clearly a drawdown in Afghanistan We all remember that the president wanted, he said, all troops should be out of Afghanistan by Christmas. That's not going to happen. We have Robert O'Brien and others now saying on the record that he's the the drawdown, and that's from 4,500 to about 2,500 troops. But I also think in this case, as long as it's not done too quickly, and I have faith in senior leadership, but the the military, senior military leaders, that they would not put our troops in danger by pulling them out too fast or uh, not in the proper way. And, And Joe Biden has never been an advocate of having a massive amount of troops in Afghanistan either. I, I think what people have to do when they look at Afghanistan, though, so again, we've said we are in the 20th year of that conflict in Afghanistan. I also think about, you know, they're saying he's going to end the war. You don't really end wars just because you want to. You can get out of them, you can leave, but you don't really end them. You can end your participation in that. My one worry, and my bad, is that what Joe Biden will do is a counterterrorism presence and that means sort of keep an eye on the place. Obviously, you can't keep as close an eye on the place if you're not, if you don't have a big presence on the ground. But it's also, you know, you've got other places in the world. You've got to keep a presence too, and that you have to constantly look for terrorist activity. I was on what was at the time called the last convoy out of Iraq. That was in 2011. And then was back. I think it was three years later when ISIS had overrun some of those towns we pulled out of in 2011. So that's certainly a lesson Joe Biden knows as well. Uh, They went down to zero, essentially, in Iraq. And that really did fuel the rise of ISIS. And it didn't take them long to nearly do in Iraq. I mean, I remember sitting in Baghdad in a hotel thinking, whoa, hope we get out of here. And I, I mean, me and my crew. And it was a really dangerous, dangerous time. And I was with, in fact, with the National Geo um, series in the book, a soldier, a general at the time, who I'd met when he was a colonel in Iraq. And there we are flying around Mosul about 12 years later saying, I cannot believe we're still here and that we're back. And, you know, he by then was again a general it seemed like an endless conflict. And, you know, that's still a very dangerous place in some spots. Do you feel that if the Senate remains in Republican hands and Joe Biden is constrained domestically in so many ways that his presidency will be defined by foreign policy? You know, I think it's just impossible to say. That is clearly something Joe Biden has experience with. I think, you know, there are always cycles to when you're a reporter and your kind of coverage And boy, have I been busy in the last couple of days with foreign policy, where I hadn't been very busy with foreign policy for about four or five months. So I I think that will ramp up. Plus, he will be handed North Korea, which is uh, in worse shape than when Donald Trump 
took office, but every president before him, it was in worse shape before. And in fact, when Donald Trump took office, he probably had the most dangerous of circumstances there were because Kim Jong-un trying to put a perfect a nuclear warhead on an ICBM. That's what he faced. And frankly, even his diplomatic efforts, if that, if that had worked, great. It didn't work. Everybody's tried everything and nothing seems to work with North Korea. So we'll see what Joe Biden comes up with. Iran as well. I mean, Joe Biden has said he wants to get back into the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Again, I don't know how you get back to the same set of circumstances because the world has changed and Iran, according to the inspectors, has more nuclear material now. So it, it's just a different world that Joe Biden's going to face, but he, he is definitely going to have to tackle some of those problems. Is there any concern that in these days, while the president becomes sort of more volatile, and I think there's evidence that that's the case, or uninterested in his job generally, not having a lot of public appearances and not making you know a lot of waves like he ordinarily does, is there a concern among people you know who are experts in and out of government that one of our adversaries will, will try something because they think there's some confusion here and there's lack of continuity and there's something real to be concerned about from Iran or some other country? I think the concern lies perhaps not so much with Iran, which I think knows full well that Joe Biden would like to get back to that deal. And if they did anything, that would definitely mess it up and definitely get Donald Trump's attention. But I, I know we're at a vulnerable time. We are. And, and in fact, when new presidents take over, it's a vulnerable time. And people see what's happening. We've got a president in the White House who has not yet conceded, and that makes us vulnerable in so many ways. And they probably think the exact same thing you you were saying. You know, is he distracted? Is he not engaged? He would say otherwise, I'm sure, but I don't know. They don't know. I mean, if you look at history and when attacks have occurred, Bill Clinton, when he was first in office in the first year he was in office, in fact, I think it was within months, the first World Trade Center bombing, Barack Obama in the first year was the embassy bombings. And 9-11. And George Bush, 9-11. Yeah. And... Actually, Barack Obama, I take that back. It was, it was, that was before him. Sorry, the embassy bombings were before him. It it was, it was the underwear bomber, the so-called underwear bomber. That's right after. In in Detroit. That's right right after Barack Obama. Can I ask you about some other thing that you have done as a journalist that's gotten a lot of attention? And I wonder what you think about the viability of this thing. And that is the presidential debate. You famously, uh, I think, got a lot of praise. You moderated a debate back in 2016 between Clinton and Donald Trump. It was a second debate. Your co-moderator, I think, was Anderson Cooper. Based on that experience, I guess my first question is, how hard is it to moderate a presidential debate? And then my second question is, based on the experience in 2016, were you surprised at how the first debate went in 2020 between Trump and Biden? Yeah. You, you were. I guess I was, and I was. I, when we talk about I know, surprise, you, I know. you and, told me this already. It's my, whether he never, my <laughs> yes, when he doesn't surprise you. Okay, so so I also did the vice presidential debate in 2012 between Biden and Paul Ryan. And that was the most civilized, sitting at a table, conversational, fair exchanges, a little bit combative. But overall, it was just such a feeling that democracy works. And and I was so proud of that debate because I really felt like the American people got a good look at both these candidates, how they perform under pressure, what their policies were. Now, fast forward to 2016, I'm not sure exactly what the American people got out of that. It was combative. It was, you know, why aren't you asking her? It was a lot of interruption. Um, you know, I, I probably got praised because it was like, move on, we're going on. I tried to control the debate. Secretary Clinton, we are moving to an audience question. We're almost out of time. We have, we have another. Mr. Trump, we're moving to an audience question. It is our country Mr. Trump, has the Secretary Clinton, we want to get to the audience. Thank you very much, both of you. 
But the 2020 debate, I just, I felt for Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace is an excellent moderator. I, I just don't know what you would have done. Well, the mute to, button. There's been discussion of the mute button. And I guess that made its appearance. Yeah, the mute button. Um, the mute button. But the mute button, you know, you'd still hear somebody trying to interrupt. I mean, it was just so out of control. I, I actually think what I would have done is just stopped it and said. <laughs> I mean, but I said it's easy it? for me to money morning quarterback. I, I mean, just like either either we're going to play by the rules or I, I don't see any reason we should go on. I, I think I, I always tell people being a parent helps you be a good debate moderator because you just sort of can give them timeouts and and threats. But also any parent knows that sometimes that doesn't work. And then what you, what do you do? It's like escalating force, right? It's like in, in you know, a diplomatic standoff. If you don't this do this, I'm going to do that. Well, eventually you have to do that or you have no credibility. So that that's a little tough in a debate. But that was just, you know, it was absurd. It was absurd. Do you spend more time thinking about the questions or thinking about the ways in which the questions might be answered that need to be fact-checked or followed up on or more time thinking about how you'll control it if it goes off the rail, like, or all of those things. All of those things. I mean, all of those things you do. I mean, you you start out, and I was a complete newbie in 2012 in particular. I was just like, I was covering wars, and out of the blue, I'm asked to do a presidential debate. I hadn't covered politics for years. <laughs> Since you're covering wars, why don't you come and do this debate? <laughs> yeah, no, maybe that was it. Maybe that was the reason. Um, and I was just immersed myself in know, whatever. And then, you know, then you decide what you, what you think people will think is important to ask about. You're never going to please everybody. That, that will be on my grave. So you're never going to please everybody. Um, but you choose topics that you think people need to know about. You try to, I, one of the things I try to do is sort of get out of the way what you know they'll come back at you with. Like, oh, please don't give me all your talking <laughs> points. So you try to kind of put those in the question doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. But, and it never works for the first question. It just never works. Um, you know, thank you for having me, you know, the blah, blah, presidency will be blah, blah, blah. So it's that, but, but very much so you want to try and figure out if they say this, do you say that if they see this? And then there's that line of, you know, you don't want to be the ticker tape fact checker. You can't really do that. So you kind of have to fact check in your question. You know, you've said this, so let's do that. Or, you know, how does that work with this, that, and the other? In the modern era, when you're doing a debate like you did in 2016, tell the truth. Do you check your iPhone? Do you check social media? Are you seeing how oh, the world? No, during. I'm asking not. you during. I think some people do. Oh wow, no. I think that's. No. I think that's why. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think that's why. I think that's oh wise. no. I you completely <laughs> you completely get in the zone. And then remember, in 2016, that was 48 hours after the Access Hollywood tape. Yeah. And then, you know, Donald Trump brings the women who were accusing Bill Clinton. And so you really had to just get in a zone. You had to get in a zone. My, my one fun debate experience was David Muir and I did a primary debate in 2016. And it was the Republican debate. And David and I were facing the audience and introducing the candidates. And there were seven at the time. How, how quaint. And we, I say a name. <laughs> How quaint, I know. And David would say a name, and now we welcome, you know, now we welcome Jeb Bush. And I would say, and now we welcome Ben Carson. And he would say, now we welcome Chris Christie. And then we turn around, and they aren't on stage <laughs> because Ben Carson did not <laughs> hear his out. name called. And my immediate thought was, oh, my God, I don't know if I can even remember everybody's name again to call them out again. But eventually they all came out. And it, and it was There's fun. footage of that. I it think was, we've seen the footage. It was definitely Saturday Night yeah, Live. There's like a yeah, sheepish. Yeah. Definitely Saturday Night Live material. Yep, yep. Well, you know, I almost, and I hate to say this, but I think it was because David did the first one. And David, you know, in his booming, fantastic voice. And I think Ben Carson was expecting to hear that voice. And when he heard mine, he didn't hear his name. It's like, yo, oh, I'm here, okay? Some, I'm, some, some a woman's introducing you. Let's, let's, well, I'm not going to say that. I'm, I'm just say saying, it. I think he was expecting that other voice. He probably hates cats. We don't, we don't know. <laughs> Martha Raditz, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Great treat for me. Great talking to you, Brie. Thanks. My conversation with Martha Raditz continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, 
head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Martha Raditz. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-247-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.